just for the sake of context. And I'm going to be in this chapter for the next few services. The Lord's put this on my heart uh, in the last day or so. And so let's look at Ezra chapter number 9, verse number 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves uh, from among from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Termites. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the Egyptians. <laughs> just making sure you're with me, all right? The Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the, the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been chief in this trespass. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair uh, of my head and of my beard and sat down and astonied. And then were assembled to me every one that trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I said, astonied until the even sacrifice. I am pronouncing that word correctly. It looks like astonished, but it is pronounced astonied. I looked it up today, okay? And at the even sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. And said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to Thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head. And our trespass is gone up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been a great trespass. Unto this day and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to the captivity, and to the spoil, and to the confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in this holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken Thy commandments, which Thou hast commanded by Thy servants, the prophets, saying, The land which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the land, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to the another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat of the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou art a God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and hath given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations, wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before, uh, behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. The book of Ezra gives the account 
of the first remnant, the first shipment of Jews, if you would, that returned to their homeland after the 70 year Babylonian captivity. In 538 BC, now that BC does not stand for before COVID, it stands for before Christ, alright? Uh, but in 538 BC, Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, conquered Babylon and issued a decree that permitted the exiled Jews to return to their homeland and to rebuild the temple. Thus, the book of Ezra goes into great detail on the reconstruction and the rebuilding of the temple, Solomon's temple, that had been destroyed some 70 years before. Ezra was the man that God used during this time to help direct the people of God in the spiritual matters. Just as He used Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, God used Ezra here in the book of Ezra to reinstitute the temple and the worship. But now within the context of Ezra chapter 9 that we have read, they have got the construction of the temple well on the way. They have already started uh, doing the sacrifices again. They have already started going, if you would, as business as usual. But there is a problem that we find in our text. First of all, we notice the sin in verse 1 and 2. And the sin that is in this text is that God's people, the Levites and the priests, had not separated themselves uh, from the Gentiles. What they were doing, they were mixing in their marriages. And this was not this was not a race issue. This was an idolatry issue. The Lord had given command to the Jews that if you marry after the heathen lands, you marry after the Canaanites and, and the Perizzites and the Jebusites, Ammonites, Termites, anybody want to throw in there, He said what they're going to do, uh, they're going to turn your heart away from God. Now, a Gentile and a Jew could get married. Uh, you remember over there in the book of Ruth how uh, that Ruth was a Moabite. And she married Boaz who was a Jew. But you remember, he was not a full Jew. He was part he was part Jericho and his daddy was a Jew because his mama was Rahab the harlot. So why did Rahab and why did Ruth get in? Well, there was an ex- exception. A Gentile, a Canaanite, we'll just say Gentile because that covers everything that's not a Jew. They could marry a Jewish individual but they had to renounce all their false gods and all their false religions. Well, obviously in this text, these people are not doing that. Here's by way of application. Here's what's going on in Israel. God's people are in love with the world. There's a great sin. There's a great problem. And are we not seeing that in the day and age we're living in? The Bible says in 1 John, we're to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is the sin... In verse 1 and 2, God's people are mingling uh, with the law. Hey, the Bible still says, Be not unequally yoked together uh, with unbelievers. Amen. In other words, a saved person ought not marry a lost person. I'm not. I'm talking about knowingly. I understand people uh, may have got saved after they got married. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about knowingly uh, going in and having fellowship and even to the point of marriage with somebody you know that's lost. And I'll even take it a step further. You young people, listen. Y'all not marry anybody. Body, uh, that doesn't believe the Bible like you do, doesn't have the same kind of church, because I'm telling you, I was on the phone with a situation today, not in our church, not even in this state, uh, but somebody that is dealing with a situation that they married somebody uh, that was raised in a different religion, and you know what it's doing? Surprise, surprise, it's causing friction in the home uh, because blood is thicker than water. 
And, and so you, you know, go ahead and make up your mind uh, that you're not going to marry somebody that doesn't believe right and do right. Now I know around here the pickings are slim. Why did I look at you when I said that? <laughs> I know it's slim pickings, amen. So we'll take you to youth meetings. There, are, there is hope, alright? And that's why we go to youth camp, alright? Uh, but what I'm saying this evening is that is the sin in this text, but then there is the sorrow in this text. Verse 3 and 4, upon hearing this report, Ezra's heart was filled with sorrow and sadness. He was disturbed over the fact. Here's what he was disturbed about. Man, i got to hurry. i got a lot to cover in 25 minutes. Here's what he was disturbed about. God had done so much for the nation of Israel. I mean, God had brought them back up from Babylonian captivity. God had allowed a miracle to take place that allowed them to come back to their homeland. And here they are. They've rebuilt the temple. It's not completed yet. Uh, but they've got it well enough where they can start having their worship services and their sacrifices. God has done so much for His people, uh, but there's still a group of people that's in love with the world. They've not separated themselves from the world. Uh, they're not allowing the Word, the, the word of God uh, to be prevalent in their life. They're living disobedient because they're in love with the things of the world. And it brought sorrow to Ezra's heart. And that leads us to verses 5-15, through 15, the supplication. In these verses, we find that Ezra is supplicating. He is praying. He is calling out to God. And as I read through the prayer of Ezra last night, I noted a theme that burdened him greatly. This theme carries throughout the prayer as the main burden of his heart. And I'm gonna, it's gonna, probably going to take me three or four messages to get through this. But here's what Ezra was concerned about. He was concerned that Israel... He was concerned that the people of God was taking the mercy of God for granted. Here's what he said in verse number 13. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, saying thou art a God, watch this now, is this not mercy? Has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And has given us such deliverance as this. He said, God, you've done a lot for us. Now watch his concern in verse 14. Should we again break thy commandments and join the offended with this people these abominations? You remember why they're in Babylonian captivity? Because of immorality and because of idolatry. He said, God, you brought us back. God, you've been merciful to us. He said, but I'm afraid we are taking the mercy of God for granted. That's what I want to preach on tonight. Taking the mercy of God for granted. I must confess tonight... Now, when I studied this last evening, and I, I was going to bed last night, and I was praying, I had to confess that I am guilty of this sin. And I would say, don't look at me like that. I'd say that all of us tonight are guilty of taking the mercy of God for granted. Because, I mean, God uh, we, God convicts us, God works something in our life, and we get right with God, God has mercy on us. But how often we find ourselves going right down that path again? going right down that direction again and allowing that sin to take place in our heart. You know what we're doing? We're taking the mercy of God for granted. I don't want to be guilty of that anymore. I don't want to take God's mercy for granted. You know what mercy is? Mercy is the withholding of what we deserve. Hey, we deserve more judgment. Ezra said in this prayer, he said, you have punished us less than what we deserve. And I want to remind us all tonight that if we got what we deserve, we'd all be in hell. And God 
God has punished us a whole lot less than we deserve. In fact, He made His Son to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteous of God in Him. But I'm telling you tonight, if we're not careful, oh, we'll allow sin to get a stronghold in our life. What are we doing? We're taking the mercy of God for granted. Taking the mercy of God for granted. There's four things in the prayer of Ezra that I want to talk about God's mercy. And I'm, Lord willing, I'm going to take four services and deal with these. I get, this is one sermon, but it's got four points, but each point's its own sermon. And you ought to thank God that I ain't going to try to preach the whole thing tonight. And all God's people said. Amen. Here's the first one I want to look at tonight. If we're not going to take the mercy of God for granted, number one, we must reflect on God's mercy. That's what he does beginning in verse number 5 through verse number 8 of our text. We'll look at these verses tonight, and then I'm going to go eat that bacon that y'all smell, alright? First of all, I want us to note the sinful rebellion. The sinful rebellion. We find that in verses 5, 6, and 7. Notice three things about Ezra in these verses. First of all, we note his heaviness in verse number 5. The Bible said, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my heaviness. This word heaviness here means affliction. It means sorrow. And his heaviness is seen in verse number 3 by what he did. What did he do in verse 3? Well, he rent his garment and his mantle. And then he plucked off the hair of his beard and of his head. You talking about sorrowful? I mean, you talking about pulling your hair out? That's exactly what Ezra is doing. And then the Bible said that he sat down and was astonished. That is how the word is pronounced if you look it up. What does the word astonished mean? It means to be appalled. It means to be stunned. It's where we get the word astonished. But it's not in a positive sense. Here's what he's standing back saying. He said, I can't believe what we've done. I don't know about you, but when I look at churches and I look at the world and I even look at my own heart sometimes, you ever just get sick and tired of yourself? You ever get tired and say, why? I can't believe I've done this. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I acted that way. I can't believe churches are doing that anymore. His heaviness in verse number 5. Then I note His humility in verse number 5. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blessed to lift up my face unto Thee, my God. Boy, you don't see that much anymore. Here, here's the picture. Here's what Ezra's done. He's on, his hand, he's on his knees, he's got his hands out, and he's like this. He said, God, I'm ashamed to even look up at you. Boy, I mean, we, don't, we do not see that anymore. And that might be why we're not seeing the revival that he's experiencing in this chapter. He, I mean, he said, Lord, he said, I'm ashamed. He fell on his knees, that submission. He spread out his hands, that service. He bowed his face, that sobriety. He's not, I understand we can come boldly to the throne of grace, but that is not speaking of pride. That is not speaking of arrogancy. That is not speaking of coming into God's presence or saying, look who I am. No, that is coming before God, knowing that He'll hear and answer our prayer. But Ezra in our text, he is so ashamed of what he has done and what the nation's done. He said, God, I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm, I bless you. You know, the Bible talks about, I think it's the prophet Jeremiah, that said they couldn't even blush anymore at their sin. That's where we're living at now. I'm not talking about just in the world. I'm talking about in the church world. Saw some articles this morning of, of a uh, so-called ministers uh, not far from here being busted uh, for child molestation and a bunch of wickedness. And I'm saying that was unheard of 
60 and 70 years ago. But now we don't even blush at that anymore. We don't even blush at that. Ezra had the right spirit when coming before the Lord's presence. I noticed the heaviness. I noticed the humility. I hasten. I noticed his honesty. Look at verse 6. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses gone up into the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. What Ezra does, he includes himself in this confession. He said, He said, Lord. He said, uh, our sins, our iniquities, our trespass, He said, it's so bad they go up over our head. We're living in a day and age where no one wants to take personal responsibility for their sin, much less the sins of others or of their church. I notice the sinful rebellion. But then secondly, in verse number 7, I want us to note the sovereign retribution. The sovereign retribution. Notice there are consequences in verse number 7. And for our iniquities. Ezra knew and understood that there was consequences for sin. You know, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. I understand the context of Numbers chapter number 32, but the principle is, is still true. Be sure your sin will find you out. If you get away with sin, you'll be the first one ever has done that. There's the consequences. The consequences. But then there's the captivity. He said in verse number 7, Have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land to the sword, to the captivity. This refers to from the kings, to the priests, to the common people. They had all been taken into that Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They were warned. God sent prophets according to 2 Chronicles chapter number 36, 35 and 36. God sent prophets to warn them. God sent preachers to warn Israel. If you keep going down this path, God's going to allow you to be taken captive. But they mocked His prophets, misused His prophets, the Bible says. Ignored the preaching. Boy, we're seeing that in the day and age we're living in. You can tell somebody something they don't listen. In fact, they go the direct opposite way of what you tell them. There's a problem uh, when you reprove somebody, rebuke somebody, and they continue to go down the same direction and do the same deeds that you warn them about. You know what that is? That is a heart of rebellion. And rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Amen. Don't bust the sin of sodomy. Don't bust all them other sins if you've got rebellion in your heart. Amen. That's called hypocrisy. You know what? We're good. We're good about preaching and dealing with the sins that we don't have a problem with. Amen. I ain't got no problem preaching against cigarettes because I don't have a problem with them. Amen. I don't struggle with them like Miss Janice does. Amen. But, <laughs> I'm sorry. Make sure you're away. Uh, you know, I don't have no problem with that. But I, I have a hard time preaching on pride because there ain't a preacher from here to the end of the world don't have trouble with pride. You know, the best thing and the worst thing you can say to a preacher is, that boy, that was some good preaching. The best and worst thing. I ain't never going to get a compliment again. Amen. And you know, preachers are bad about fishing for a compliment. Hope you enjoyed the sermon today. What are they going to say? No, it was rotten. <laughs> there are some Sundays y'all should have said that. That was rotten, alright? But what I'm saying is, we're good about dealing with the sins. I ain't got a problem with sodomy. And I, we ought to preach against all sin. But we're really good about hating everybody else's sin and we don't hate our sin. Amen. We ought to hate our sin, ought to hate their sin. We ought to just hate sin. 
captivity. Notice the cost and the spoil. Not only were they taken in captivity, but they were also ravaged and spoiled by the Babylonians. That word spoil there is not what that little boy is getting right now. Being spoiled like all of our youngins are. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about robbing them. It's talking about taking them. It's talking about taking all their possessions, all their goods, all their want. I don't care what anybody says. Every time I look at that boy, he smiles. He loves his preacher, all right? And somebody says, he smiles at everybody. He smiles at me bigger, okay? But what I'm saying is is that that the, the Babylonians came in and not only did they take the Israelites into captivity, but they ravaged their homes and they ravaged their families and they destroyed the temple. There's a cost to sin. Then there's the confusion, verse 7. And to confusion of face as it is this day. The word confusion here not only means a lack of understanding, but, in the, but the context further defines this word as shame. You remember Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon? We sat down, yeah, we wept, we remember Zion. And you know what they said in Psalm 137? For they that carried us away required of us a song. And they that waste us required us of mercy, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they said, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They were mocking God's people. Come on now, sing one of those songs y'all sung in the temple. Mocking them. Making them ashamed. You know what? Many churches have become a laughing stock in the world. Me and my wife was... We took a family day Monday. I've been gone so much and going to be gone here in the next few weeks. We took a day Monday and we were talking. I mean, even when we take a day off, we're still talking about church and ministry. I mean, it is what it is. She don't know nothing about college football, but I love her anyway. Amen. I've been trying. Amen. Next, next Thursday will be 11 years I've been trying. It ain't helped yet, all right? But what I'm saying is, you, you know, me and my wife was talking about things and, and we've always, we've come to this conclusion. It's a wonder lost people don't want to go. It's not a wonder lost people don't want to go to church. All the goofiness. Oh, and I'm not talking about standing against sin and standing for right. I'm just talking about foolishness. And the church has become a laughing stock in the world. You almost don't blame people for not coming. There is not only the sinful rebellion, the sovereign retribution, but then notice in verse number 8, I'm almost done. Y'all still with me? Notice the special remnant. Look at verse number 8. Notice, notice the space. And now for a little space. The word space here in our context means moment. God's people have been under the judgment of God for some 70 years, but now God had given His people a moment. This was an undeserved moment. This was an unbelievable moment. But this was an unusual moment. Here's what I mean by that. Remember what I said in the introduction? God's people are in bondage in Babylon for 70 years. But then God used a wicked man named Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, and he went into Babylon and he conquered Babylon. And when he conquered Babylon, Brother Charles, he released the Jews to go home. Here's what's unusual about it. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 44:28, Thus saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even to the saying of Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Isaiah prophesied that God would have Cyrus defeat Babylon and release the Jews to their homeland to rebuild the temple. You know what's really cool about that? Isaiah 44 was written 150 years before Cyrus was born. God already knew his name. God already knew he, knew he would rise to power. 
God already knew he'd be the king of Persia. And God said, I'm going to use that man. And he is going to... God knows the end from the beginning. Amen. God knows how... A hundred... I don't know about you. That amazes me. One hundred and fifty years before that joker was born. God said, I'm going to use that man right there to send the Jews back to defeat the Babylonians and to lay the foundation of the temple and get it started all over again. No wonder it was a space. It was a moment that God had given His people. And as for saying, we don't need to take the mercy of God for granted. He has given us a moment. He has given us a space. Then He gave them not only a space, but He gave them grace. Verse number 8, And now for a little space, grace hath been shown from the Lord our God. God not only withheld what they deserved, that's mercy, but God gave them what they did not deserve. That's grace. There's the space, there's the grace, and there's the escape. He said to leave us in a remnant to escape. The word remnant there, it means what's left. Wasn't much left, but there was some left. The remnant always refers to Israel in your Bible. The church is not a remnant. We're the body of Christ. But the Jews are a remnant. There's only a few of them left. But thank God, there's more than a few of us left. John said he saw a number that no man could number in Revelation 4 and 5. Hey, we're not a remnant, thank God. Oh, we're a battalion, amen. Oh, we are the, in the army of God. But in this context, here's what Ezra was saying. Thank God there were some people oh, that were in Babylon. And they didn't bow. And they didn't give in. And they didn't give up. Well, who was that? Well, there's an old boy in Daniel chapter number 6. And he won't, he won't bow and pray to the false gods. He only prays to the God of heaven. It's Daniel. There's three boys in Hebrews and Daniel chapter 3. The three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they wouldn't bow. Thank God there was a remnant. Oh, thank God there were people that even though they lived in Babylon, Babylon didn't live in them. You can still live for God in a wicked world. And that is the, that is the, the, the special remnant. But last of all, in verse number 8, and we'll finish up tonight. There's the spiritual revival. God gave them a spiritual revival to the ones that wouldn't bow and give in to the compromise of the world. Three things and we're done. There's the permanence. And to give us a nail in His holy place. You know what real revival will do? It will cause you to have stability and faithfulness in your life. You know, I'm I'm not a carpenter by no means. I mean by no means. All right, Brother Eric's back here having a shouting spell. Amen. But I do know this. They have different nails for different purposes. Did you know the nails that are holding those rafters together tonight are not the same nails that's holding that clock on the wall? They're two different nails. They have finishing nails. They have, you know, roofing nails. Call out some more nails, fellas. What's that? I ain't got no money. He's asking for a penny. Penny, penny nail. Give me. Uh, what, what's another? Decking. Uh, what's that? Decking screws. We're talking about nails. All right. What's that? You know what every nail has in common? Two things. One, they carry a load. And two, you can't see them. Does anybody see a nail in here tonight? That's not a nail. That's an eye hook. You need your glasses. Is it? Okay. 
So now we know why he's living like he is. He ain't been listening to the preaching. He's been watching that nail up there. We're figuring it out. Why is that up there? Eric, get the ladder. <laughs> Don't mind us. We're just having church. Take your nails down. Well, until Suave ruined my illustration up here. But a nail's just not supposed to hang on a wall like that. So why they're up there, I have no idea. Probably some goofy Christmas thing, whatever. But here's my point. Did nobody walk in this building, even though there are nails, said, boy, look at that nail. They, they don't pull up and say, boy, y'all have some beautiful nails in this church. But you know what? The nails that are holding them rafters, they're holding a heavy load. But the nail that holding, is holding that clock, it's holding the load, but it's not as heavy, but it's still holding the load. Well, I don't feel like I'm much here. Well, if you're a nail and God's got you in this holy place, you got a load. It might not be as heavy as somebody else, but you're supposed to be responsible. Hey, God don't expect a finishing nail to be a rafter nail. Amen. God don't expect God don't expect you to do what somebody else does, but He expects you to do what you can do. There's permanence in this text. Boy, you've ruined my sermon. But then there's perception in this text that our God that our God may lighten our eyes. The word lighten means to illuminate. In other words, when you have real revival, you'll walk in the light. You'll see the light. And then there's the passion. And give us a little reviving in our bondage. Here's my point. It's 8 o'clock and I'm supposed to hush. Nehemiah is praying, excuse me, Ezra is praying in this text. He is disturbed at his nation. He is disturbed by what he's seeing. He's disturbed by by the conduct of God's people not living separated from the world. Is that not right? He said, God, you've been so merciful to us. And we're going right back to what got us in this mess. He said, we're taking the mercy of God for granted. Just making sense tonight. I don't want to take God's mercy for granted. So the first thing we need to do, we need to reflect on God's mercy. We need to reflect on the fact that when we rebel, God ought to send us all to hell. God ought to, amen, punish us more than what we deserve, but He's merciful. And I don't want to take the mercy of God for granted. Do you? I hope not. Let's not take God's mercy for granted. Let's stand where the matches going to come with a verse of invitation. I know it's 8 o'clock, but I do feel led to let Him play through one verse. God spoke to your heart tonight. These altars are open. Taking the mercy of God.